last for those who are at ease in Zion. Amos chapter 6, verse 1. Sunday by Sunday through late summer and now into early fall, and our readings from the Bible, Woe to the Rich, has been a recurring theme. Last week was the parable of the dishonest steward. Before that, we heard Jesus say that if you don't let go of your possessions, you cannot be my disciple. Before that, he told us about the rich man busy adding barns and fields. God confronted this man and said, You fool, this very night your soul has been demanded of you. Preaching on that parable, I said that as a rich man, I am the cat and the Bible is the hot tin roof. In hearing today's gospel, you can enjoy also the fact that I happen to be clothed in purple and fine linen, just like a certain rich man who finds himself in hell. He cries out from there, appealing for a drop of water, denied. Then he begs leave to go back and warn his brothers to repent, again, denied. Abraham, who we now learn has been assigned to babysit this sector of the netherworld, tells the man that his brothers have had warning enough already through Moses and the prophets. The rich man retorts, well, sure, but let's get real. Men like my brothers don't pay attention to Moses and the prophets. They listen to Warren Buffett and the Wall Street Journal. A visit from me, a ghost, would grab their attention pretty quick, I think. It worked for Ebenezer Scrooge. But Abraham is not persuaded. If the brothers haven't listened to Moses and the prophets, neither, he says, will they be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Luke, our author, expects us, his readers, to see a double meaning in that. What the rich man asks for has been given, has it not? Who do we know who has been risen from the dead? With this morning's readings comes some good spiritual advice on being rich. In our epistle, we find Paul giving pastoral direction to a new young vicar, Father Timothy, regarding dealings with certain wealthy members of his congregation. Perhaps you know this and perhaps you don't. For the clergy, wealthy members present something of a challenge. Partly, this is because the church needs your contributions. And one untoward word can send a certain kind of rich person out the door, never to come back. In that case, the church is left with no way to pay the January heating bill. So you definitely don't want to make them mad if you can help it. However, the New Testament makes it very clear that leaders of the church are not to show special deference to the rich. Read James 2, verses 1 through 7. And we are not to measure generosity by dollar size of a contribution, but rather by the sacrifice it represents. Read Mark 12, 41 through 44, the story of the widow's might. The rector needs the big dollar contributions to build the education wing, where he or she will teach that those big dollar contributions might not add up to much in the eyes of God. That's the challenge. St. Paul could not care less. He is not concerned about what rich folks can do for the education wing. He is concerned about our souls. 
His advice to Timothy starts like this. As for those who in this present age are rich, command them not to be haughty. Haughty. What is that? Let's try this paraphrase. Command them not to congratulate themselves for being rich. Command them to bite their tongues off before they use the line, don't you know who I am? And not even to think those words without immediately experiencing a sense of shame. Haughty means taking pride in being wealthy, as distinct from feeling pride in working hard and drawing satisfaction for a job well done. I'm sure that Paul would agree that pride in good hard work is healthy. But taking pride in being rich is hazardous to a soul's health. He says, command them not to do that. Command them. At this point, the rich and the clergy in the room may be sharing the same thought. Good luck with that. I think we can assume that the Apostle Paul and Timothy are both aware that the rich do not expect to take commands from clergy. The rich are accustomed to receiving and clergy to giving deference. Assuming that Paul knows this, let's ask ourselves what else Paul knows that would prompt him to issue such a socially and financially hazardous directive. Read him and learn. St. Paul knows that our customs of deference have been crafted for survival in a world that is spiraling down into spiritual hopelessness and physical entropy, a world that in the last analysis is doomed. Think Titanic. Strangely, we know this too, but by common agreement, we continue to live as though it were not so. Paul calls this agreement life according to the flesh. But St. Paul also knows of life that spirals in the opposite direction, upwards, out of hopelessness and death. There is, as it were, a spiral staircase, a set of attitudes, customs, and habits that sustain this upward movement. Paul calls this life according to the Spirit. As an appointed servant and messenger of Christ, it is Paul, actually, who expects a certain deference. The deference due to the emissary of a great benefactor who holds your life in his hands and whose intentions for you are good. Reading Paul, we find him willing to pay a certain deference according to the customs and standards of the world, the flesh, but in the way that an emissary of the President of the United States might accord deference to the chiefs and witch doctors of a newly discovered tribe of pygmies in the South, of South Pacific adorned with bone necklaces and armed with blowguns. Command them, Paul continues, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches but rather on God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Let me say what this particular instruction doesn't mean. The point is not that the rich have only God, as opposed to their own hard work and ingenuity, to thank for their success. 
as though Walmart and Microsoft dropped down from heaven into the laps of Sam Walton and Bill Gates. Why do I say that? Because supposing Paul did mean that, then the corollary would be that the poor have God to thank for their unemployment, that cancer patients have God to thank for their fear, nausea, and pain, and that grieving parents have God to thank for the accidental death of their teenage son and daughter. Both sides of that coin show human beings passive and helpless before the irresistible will of Almighty God. And this is not the Christian view of either God or human beings. The Christian view leaves room for freedom. Its basic idea is stewardship. God bestows gifts and provides the raw material of life. We use these gifts and materials according to our ability, opportunity, and inclination. In the end, we are accountable for how we've lived and what we've done with our gifts and opportunities. The Christian view can credit the Gates and Waltons of this world for their achievement, and St. Paul is not denying that. Command them, he is saying, not to get drunk on their success. Advise them that continued success isn't guaranteed, or don't they know that this is a world where the rules change with every election, where a trial jury in the Mississippi Delta can turn a Delaware corporation upside down and shake until there's nothing left but empty pockets. Warn them that putting their hopes in the wrong place leads sooner or later to disappointment and finally to destruction. Spiritually, it is building a house on shifting sand. Show them that there is a better way. Teach it to them. Teach them the habit of thanking God who bestows the gifts and supplies the raw materials, abilities, opportunities, and inclinations. Guide them to do good, to be rich in good works, ready to share. Promise them the treasure of a good foundation for the future. Talk to them in their own language. It's like building your house on solid rock. Tell them that. These people are smart. They'll get it. We'll close with a story that I've told you before about my father, the late Bishop Christoph Keller, Jr., a man whose drawers and closets were well stocked with purple and fine linen, both literal and otherwise. Some 30 years ago, we went to my sister Elizabeth's college graduation. Elizabeth is Sam, the son of you. It was a bright, sunny day in the hills of western Massachusetts, and the hills were alive with the sounds of charming, smart, and beautiful people everywhere. It was a lot like Trinity Cathedral. At a point in the proceedings, my father got up to find a restroom. After a while, it began to occur to us that he had been away for a long time, and so I went off to find him. I found him in the men's room, and this is what I saw. My father was with a man who seemed out of place at a Williams College graduation. The man was poorly dressed, crippled by some kind of neurophysical disorder, and I also think mentally impaired. He was the kind of man who would frighten little children 
whom teenage boys might taunt and whom adults would pity. He had had a problem in the bathroom and it had turned into an awkward, maybe a messy scene. I doubt that there was any persons, person on the Williams College campus that morning who knew less about how to help an afflicted person having a problem in the bathroom than Bishop Christoph Keller, Jr. But when I found him, there he was, with that man in the stall, on the floor, doing what he could, as best he could, to help him. Eventually, the two men walked out the door and down some steps together, rich man, poor man, arm in arm. Alas for those who are at ease in Zion. If I haven't absorbed that lesson, shame on me, because it's not as though I wasn't shown a better way. 